Gracias, señor. Sí, por favor. Estoy aquí en La Condesa, en DF, Mexico City, con mi amigo desde muchísimos años, el profesor muy conocido Will Straw. Gracias. Y Will está recibiendo un poco de queso para, para cambiar su, su pasta en una dirección. Cambiar, that's kind of a lazy word. But... Sorry about that. Anyway, Will, uh, as you dig into your pasta, uh, why the fuck are you here, old thing? What brings you to this climb? You said you just told me, get this, listeners, this is your 31st yes. visit to Mexico City. Yes. How um, long have you been coming here? I've been coming here since 1993, which, as you all know, was the 50th anniversary of Canadian-Mexican diplomatic relations, and there was an event in 1993 to which I was invited to speak about Canadian culture. I met wonderful friends, great colleagues, and I've been here at least once a year ever since. Now, I actually really didn't know that. Why was there no ambassadorial exchange or recognition before 1943? My guess is that, you know, it wasn't that long after the Mexican Revolution, um, and maybe Canada, and I don't, I'm not sure U.S. had um, official diplomatic relations much before that. I certainly know why it probably happened in, in, 2000, in 1943, which was uh, Canada's version of the good neighbor policy, let's get on board with uh, these countries so they stick with us, but I'm no expert on that. That's really interesting. So you've been coming here for 20 years. Ironically, that's exactly when I moved to the United States, 1993. And what is it that jives with you or gets you going in terms of Mexican intellectual culture and Mexican, shall we say, quotidian culture? Well, what my friends find ridiculous is that I've been to Mexico 31 times and I've never been to a beach. I've never been to the oceans, and in fact, I've only been to two other places besides Mexico City, Puebla, and Guadalajara yesterday. So I always come to Mexico City, which is one of my favorite cities in the world. I love everything about it. I love the commerce in the downtown. I love the street life. I like the flea markets. I like the public transportation system. I just, nothing makes me, I was thinking this morning as I walked around the Central Historico, um, there's nothing I like better than watching a, an old downtown come to life. I just, I love this city. It sounds as though you're talking about Canada plus an informal economy. Yeah, but it's, it, the, the plus is going to have to be big because it's going to be a lot more population. Um, yeah, it's the informal economy, certainly. Um, although, you know, as I've been coming here, the informal economy has more and more receded, been outlawed. When I first came, every street was full of people selling, you know, well, in those days, uh, pirated cassettes and video cassettes and this and that. Um, a lot of them have been pushed away. Um, the city has changed a lot, especially the downtown. I mean, there's the Eco Beachy, the, the free bicycle, the public bicycle system, which is I would never have thought 20 years ago. Um, people would be riding around neighborhoods on bicycles in Mexican traffic um, with drivers as we know them, so... If we go back to 1993 more generally for you, you must have been a fairly well-established professor already by then. What was happening for you professionally? I had just moved from Carleton University where for nine years I had taught film studies. I just just moved to McGill to take up a position in the what was in the graduate program in communications, one of the sort of long-standing um, programs. So I was an associate professor. I 
you know, I really just started getting interested in writing about Canada. I mean, my PhD dissertation was on the American record industry. What I'd written about up until then was mostly American film noir. But, you know, in the two or three years before that, the idea of a Canadian cultural studies had started to take hold. And with dear friends and colleagues like Jody Berland and so on, Marty Allor, we had been thinking about the things that you could do that were specially Canadian but that drew on discourses, institutions and knowledges from other places. Exactly. Sorry, yeah, I just had a piece of food caught in my throat. Um, and then, I, you know, out of the blue, I had only at that point supervised one graduate student at Carleton in Ottawa. Wow. I had supervised a master's in um, Canadian studies, Anne-Marie Turcott, Ooh. who I was a, you know, became a good friend. And then I moved to McGill and I got a call from her and she was the cultural attaché at the Canadian Embassy in Mexico City and asked if I wanted to come down. Gracias, señor. Muy bien, ¿no? And Gracias what... por la recomendación, ¿no? Y quisiéramos un otro botella. Sí, sí, la misma. And the result has been one of the great things of my life, which is this relationship to Mexico. Wow. Mexico That's City. So... Just getting back to that moment, it does sound interesting to me. As a person who goes to Canada maybe every year or two, and who's loved it from the moment I set foot in it, I'm one of those people who actually likes Ottawa, which you're not allowed, Canadians are not allowed to feel or say, I think, right? It's like liking DC or liking Brasilia or liking Canberra. You just can't. <laughs> I was actually enchanted by it. But Montreal is another city again. Montreal and New Orleans and Mexico City are my easily, they're clearly the best three cities mm. in North America. What, what drew you from Carlton to McGill? Was it something about the city change or no? I was happy in Carlton and I was happy in Ottawa, but I mean I would say what happened was in, when I was at Carlton I had wonderful friends and colleagues. Um, and we would often go to a bar, a bar in a neighborhood called the Glebe, called Irene's. And it would be great, but I remember thinking, this is great, but we're going to be doing the same thing in 30 years. And I was, I guess, 39 when I moved to McGill. And, it, you, know, it, you know, you start thinking, how many moves do I have? And, I, and of course, I always preferred Montreal. I actually had had a girlfriend in Montreal and would spend weekends there. I had as much of my social life in Montreal. Right. Ottawa is good, but it is not what, you know, urban theorists would call an inexhaustible city where around every corner you're going to find something mysterious and unexpected. It's Montreal, very knowable, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's knowable and that's what makes it comfortable and, yeah. and it's a much better city now than it was when I was there. When I was there it was a much better city than it had been 20 years ago. People credit the Trudeau governments of the 70s and 80s with bringing sort of a life to Ottawa. Well-educated civil servants, bilingual, people who wanted good restaurants and wine and so on and it was, you know, all of that improved it. But I still prefer yeah, Montreal. Um, Montreal. And you'd done your PhD or MA or both in Montreal McGill. Well, I did my BA at Carleton, in moved Oswald. to McGill, yes, yeah. for my MA and PhD, back to Carleton to teach, and right. then back to McGill back to, to McGill. teach. So I was sort of Ottawa, Montreal, Ottawa, Montreal. And before that, I was a kid. In Halifax. Is that no, right? Hamilton, Hamilton and places so. west and north. My father was an Anglican clergyman. We moved right. like military families every two or three years. Every two or three years. So you were a church brat rather than a military brat. Exactly. No gracias, señor. And I'm sorry for saying Halifax. I, I had the H-A bit right, but not that. Fine. So Hamilton, Ontario. So you've gone from the manse 
to being a kind of crazy aesthetic Marxist, avant-gardist lover of popular culture. Well, I've been called a lot of things, but sure, I can live with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you did your, your grad degrees at McGill in Montreal, and this is how I first heard of you. After I'd first, well, I'd read your work, but then I got to know our dear friend Stuart Cunningham. Stuart was a student with you, is that right? Was he at the same time? Indeed, student. Stuart was there, I believe, when I was doing my MA, and we had a very tightly knit group that was included, alas, um, the departed Paul Atala, who's passed away a few years ago. Wonderful, um, wonderful Stuart. And then, if you look across Canada in the communications departments, you will find people who studied with us. It was a very closely knit group. I remember we had reading groups. It was sort of the MA in communications at McGill was everything you would want from a grad um, school. That is, we sort of the students defined it themselves in part against the professors, but that forced us to do all kinds of things on our own that are, you know, Sean Cubitt was there now, course, major theorist of uh, new media. I remember him, we went to a party and he says, you have to hear this new band called Joy Division, and the Love Will Tear Us Apart came on, and I thought, yeah, that was pretty that good. That was so, pretty good, actually, yeah. yeah. Pity that guy's no longer with us. Yeah, interesting. Ian Curtis, not Sean Cubitt. Yeah, Sean Cubitt, uh, thankfully, is with us, but yeah. Ian Curtis well and truly departed. Although we're now, instead of being given the tortured artist narrative, we're now told it's all to do with having seizures. That's right, that's right. <laughs> so, anyway, Joy Division, which begat New Order. Which in many ways was a better band. <laughs> well, let's, let's put it this way, New Order. Off <laughs> Absolutely not. Here comes the second bottle of wine, so let's watch the drift. Perfecto, muchísimas gracias. No, the, the fact is that New Order had 20 more years to do things, and they were gracias, and a little older and a little wiser. And I would say Joy Division was good, but gave right gave way to more bad imitations of themselves well, than New Order did. Joy Division had one superb single, I mean really incredible, love to tear us apart as you say. Joy, uh, New Order had, you know, I guess what, 45 yeah, great singles? Yeah. And 35 remixes of each of those, which are all fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> right. Did you ever own any of those blue, you know, 27-inch singles that, that used to come out. Remember in the sure, late sure. 80s when oh, you yeah, got sure, those sure. multicolored singles? Sure, sure. The 12-inch yeah, single is... One of my favorite commodity forms of all time. <laughs> so you did your doctorate at McGill on the record industry. Music is one of these areas that I've always thought is powerfully important to all of us, much more than film or television or radio or literature, because we all want it every day. Yes. You know, you don't have to be a cinephile. I mean, everybody wants to hear music every day. And you do experience it whether you want to or not. Why is it though that academically it's not attracted quite the same attention as those other media? I think the, the reason is quite simple. One of them is that for as long as there have been arts faculties and universities, there have been faculties of music with people who claim to work on music and in some cases do. But in somebody in any other field who wanted to work on music, people would always say, well, there are people who do that. Um, it's as if in communications you wanted to work on television and somebody said, well, no, there is a whole conservatory of television that's been there since 1944. Um, you can't do that. So in many ways, even though the people in music might not have been doing the job on popular music you wanted them to, 
that kind of blocked you, like on Hollywood squares, um, for doing it. The other thing is that what's interesting to me is that people who study literature don't feel they have to know linguistics. I mean, in the 60s and so on, with structuralism, maybe they felt they should read Saussure and Benveniste and so on. Um, if you study music, for a long, it was hard to. To believe that if you couldn't read music and analyze the notes, that you could at all talk about it. Um, right. So it took a lot of time to sort of overcome, on the one hand, the feeling that who are we to talk about music when there's this huge building down the street of people who supposedly work on music, and then what's the language with which I'm going to talk about music? So that's why, for someone like me, you kind of retreat into the political economy, where you feel I am on solid ground, I know about this, I know how cultural industries work, um, but I've always been hesitant if I tried, I mean, I remember an early paper where I tried to analyze, I don't know, a Pet Shop Boys song or something, and I was like, how the hell am I going to do this? Uh, two comments, one would be to say, the interesting thing about that is that there really is a full building down the street dedicated to that, because they were their own creatures. Mm -hmm. From the turn of the century, for many, many decades, they had their own conservatory, just like a certain kind of art school did, in ways that have now tended to fall apart. You still get that sort of thing here in a place like Mexico. The other comment would be... I mean, why are there faculties of music, but only departments of literature? Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, because I think they had the lock on creation, teaching creation. Yeah teaching production, teaching performance. And the academic bit of it was always there through the notational systems that you've referred to, uh, but was always secondary, outside notation. Yeah, so all yeah. the cultural history that they had a bit of was always often... Well, no one can ever figure out, if you're outside a music faculty, the difference between musicology and music theory. I thought the musicologists were the ones who analyzed the notes, apparently not, it's the music theorists. The musicologists look at the history of instruments, except that's not always true either. So, so in a sense, you were driven to analyze the industry by a certain anxiety about your credentials or legitimacy for analyzing the meanings, is that right? Well, my first PhD, the topic I proposed when I entered the doctoral program was a typical early 80s grad student topic. I wanted to look at the evolution of the Althusserian theory of ideology, how it had been transformed under critiques from Hindus and Hearst, blah, 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 um, and a big picture. So you were a PCMP, yeah. pre-capitalist mode right, of production right. dude. I was totally into You were that. trying to be a young Canadian Turk. Indeed. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, I drifted, I, I remember, I got, I accepted into the PhD program. I was a good graduate student. I got a fellowship from the Canadian government, but I basically spent the first two or three years of my PhD going to clubs um, and thinking, oh, i got to get home and work on that Althusser dissertation, but what I really am interested <laughs> in music, and then actually what happened is that one day I went into a secondhand bookstore in Montreal, and basically all the issues of Billboard from uh, 1975 to 1980 were there for $50 or something, and, snapped and I snapped them up, took a, called a, waved a cab down, took them home, and decided I wanted to write on the record industry, the American record industry between 1975 and 19, well it ended up being 1985 because it took me 10 years to do my dissertation. Now, jumping ahead a bit, I want to go back to that, but jumping ahead, is there place in Canadian academia for that kind of serendipity now? 
If you mean do people change the thesis topic, sure, although not as much, I think. And you're not allowed to do your to take ten years to do your dissertation because, of course, completion rates. The, the, you know, every graduate program has now statistics on the average, the desired. Um, Time to degree. So yeah, I, that, I think that's a, probably an improvement. Um, but, so, but the thing of you know, the story that has you walking into a bookstore. Sec first of all, walking into a second-hand bookstore. Where are they? I mean, they're still there in Montreal, but I'm sure there aren't as many as they were in those no, days. No, but the serendipity of saying, "I've walked into a bookstore. I've seen this stuff. It's galvanized me. It's dynamized me. It's animated me." And that's what I want to work on. That sort of serendipity seems to me to have been beaten out of people through the governmentalization and commodification of so much of research studentship. Well, in you know, in 1982, perhaps when I decided this would be my topic, someone should probably have said you shouldn't do this because no one ever gets a job in communications working on popular music. Um, now, the fact that I ended up, Bart Beatty, a good friend, colleague, and former student of mine, talks about I, I told him not to work on comics because I said there'd never been a job um, in comics. And I didn't get my jobs because I worked on popular music, and he didn't get his job because he worked on comics. And nevertheless, each of those is a field in which we're best known. But we got our jobs not by lying about what we worked on, <laughs> but, but by playing it down and spin, spinning it in relationship to other things. Okay, so we'll get back to that in a minute. Let's return, though, to the almost lost decade. What were you up to, old thing? Well, the thing, you need, no, well the thing you need to know is, that, yes, I went out to clubs for three years, but in 1984, unexpectedly, a film studies tenure-track job opened up at Carleton, where I had done my MA, and I got it. So, oh, um, so just that as I was about... And, of course, when they interviewed me they said you know we like everything about you we're a little concerned that you haven't finished the dissertation it was like don't worry i'll finish it the first summer um well two things happened one of them is that when you teach your first year and in those days i was teaching three and two you are so burned out all i was in there all new courses that the summer came and i just collapsed and barely worked on um, my dissertation but the other thing is this was the era when for the first time i got a personal computer and had to learn word perfect 2.0 or whatever it was and uh, you know learn how to write and so I wasted a year or so learning how to write on a, on a with a word processing program now I'm a procrastinator anyways but all of those were pretty good reasons to uh, yeah, not finish yeah, it the first yeah, summer no, off this regularly happens tell us about procrastination well I am someone who tends to leave things to the last moment now partly it's because I'm busy Partly because, unless I have a de deadline, it's, I'm not someone who can say, oh, I think this weekend I have a free time, I'll start an article from scratch and see where it goes. Unless I'm piled up with deadlines of things I have to complete and a certain amount of pressure, I can't do it. Um, because, I mean, most of it is that I'm, I have a lot of administrative things, a lot of letters of recommendations, so it's always easier to do the busy work than to sit down and face the blank page. Um, so I face the blank page when I absolutely have to, when I risk professional humi humiliation, embarrassment, and the anger of my friends because I don't finish something. <laughs> we have it now, folks. Getting back to the... Uh, I really appreciate your sharing the experience of not having finished the PhD, going into the new job, then there being technological change, 
and these things militating against quick completion, quite apart from procrastination, because all too often those elements are not taken into account by people, and I think it's very important to acknowledge those. I also think it's important for a senior and fully achieved scholar like yourself to acknowledge these problems. Yes. Uh, you know, so that the narrative is not the... But I'm not saying I was a victim of... T I mean, I am a procrastinator. Um, sure, well, I understand that too. Yeah. But I mean, to, but to, sh to sh acknowledge and share with listeners, because a lot of listeners to this are going to be people thinking about writing PhDs or trying to, that not all of us who may read happily from their work cited and bibliographies actually simply produce these things as if they arose magically from the middle of our heads and nothing was necessarily teleological or arrow-like or straightforward or any of the rest of it. No, and I will say a lot of those, that time, I was, you know, going through Billboard and other trade magazines issue by issue taking notes that I still use in my research. It's a resource that has paid off um, in lots of ways. Well, let me move on to a, a related topic about that, if I could. I think both you and I have learned a lot about the cultural industries because we like reading industry magazines and we like industry gossip and we like industry people who tell us stuff. Uh, it seems to me that that's increasingly, on the one hand, easy to get and on the other hand, hard to get. It's easy to get because of all the blogs sure. that these folks directly write themselves. It's harder to get because good, solid... Not exactly investigative, but fieldwork journalism. Doesn't really happen. So, you know, Hollywood Reporter, Variety, Billboard, any of these institutions shrink their worldview nowadays. Yeah. I mean, you know, what I would, and I think I'm in complete agreement with you here, is that. Me working on Billboard was not me as the sophisticated analyst confronting a crude um, magazine only concerned with statistics. I mean, you know, Billboard would run long, long articles mm -hmm. in the 70s and 80s about trends, about demographics, about shifts in racial taste, racially defined taste, gender taste, and uh, these are insider analyses. Yeah, so they're not academic. So what? They were uh, but, no, they were incredible. Yeah. Look, I, but they I, didn't require me to add the social dimension. <laughs> the social dimension, and the, you know, radio and the recording industry confront probably more than any other industry um, the questions of of race, of age, of gender, um, and that's built into the very self understanding of the radio industry, the recording industry, the concert industry, and so um, I think those who don't read the trade magazines are missing. Yes. A self-understanding that is quite sophisticated and... Oh, absolutely. Listen, you know, I've worked in radio in the late 70s and this was in Australia. Billboard, even though it was often writing about topics that didn't address our precise playlist, was biblical in its significance precisely because it was incredibly sophisticated in its social analysis, which mattered to us too. Although at a less diverse level than was the case with Billboard. You know, I remember you'd read an article in Billboard in the late early 80s about how punk shows move out uptown as artists, art spaces become primo venues or something like that. So basically you're talking about how the New York art world is taking up punk and it's kind of becoming performance art yeah. and it's now reaching a whole new audience. Um, and you know, 
who's written anything better on that moment? Right, right. No, absolutely. I think they... Well, it's partly to do with their being very capacious in their view of what their industrial task was. Gracias, señor. No, no, perdón, perdón. Cambio. Toby's choosing teas. The... Partly this was them doing their job. It's also these were very sophisticated journalists. Yeah, yeah, they were. Yeah. And the funny thing about that kind of very targeted capitalism is that it's quite liberal. It's quite open-minded because it, it wants to know what it's missing as well as what it's hitting. Right? It's quite unideological <coughs> in that sense. And I think the disappointing thing that's happened is that some of our much beloved street yeah. culture yeah. <laughs> inter intervening with us. It's uh, that in your tacos truck going yeah, by. Possibly yeah. the biggest array of meat I've seen in the last 20 years. <laughs> Other than, of course, sitting opposite Professor Will Straw. Wah, wah, wah. Um, and what I regret now is, of course, everybody's dancing on the happily on the graves of the, of the record industry. And, and so what you basically have is... Perfect. Almost everything you read about music is More now through the kind of intellectualized critical discourse about values and so on. But, you know, Billboard would actually tell you what demographic groups were listening to this music. Yep. Pitchfork doesn't. Pitchfork doesn't acknowledge the limits to, you know, the circumscription of the, the hipness that it describes. And and that to me is, a, well, is an absence. One of, one of the things about today is that I maintain that right across the cultural industries, in empirical terms, there's nothing, nothing left to know. The problem is it all costs $4,000 for a six-page report. Yeah, good point. I mean, it's astonishing how rich the demographic and even ethnographic knowledge is of how people process culture yeah. in the United States. But we, are they going to show it to us? No fucking way. Whereas no. Billboard would get those reports yeah. gratis, and they were probably only going for 150 bucks anyway, to the extent there were such reports, and then regurgitate yeah. them and interpret them. Before. And there were problems, because Billboard used to base their charts on calling up a few record stores. I mean, there's the famous moment when they went to SoundScan, which is the system that would actually track record sales at cash registers rather than just what the cashier told Billboard was they thought were selling, which right. was usually what they liked. And all of a sudden, country music and hip-hop were way more important than college alternative rock. Or, right. you know, surprise, surprise. <laughs> um, but Billboard adapted to that and changed. And I, I want to ask you something about that. I want to go back to the question of political economy and textual analysis in a question in a moment. But I want to ask you about college rock. Uh, I don't know what it meant in Canada. But in the United States, it's a kind of mythic possibility that allegedly produces REM, and then at the end of its era, produces Coldplay. Yeah. Well, as an academic, I've had one tip, which is this article on scenes published in, I don't know, the early 90s or something, um, much of which was a sort of argument against the romanticization of American <coughs> college rock and the whole idea that everybody talked about, oh, we have an amazing local scene here in Athens, Georgia, Champaign-Urbana, Urbana, and so on. Um, Are you Canada, saying that you don't like REO speed I like, wagon? Oh, I thought you were going to say REM. Um, <laughs> no, you did mention Champaign-Urbana. What's REO? Okay, is that? That's where REO okay, speed yeah, wagon's from. Because their dads were, you know, Yeah, but they were not part of, of the scene. Just in, like George Will was, his dad was a philosophy professor in Champaign. Anyway, they were not part of the Champaign scene, okay. 
No. <laughs> Part of the champagne. There's got to be a joke. George Bill champagne too. Um, I mean, in Canada, most universities that people go to tend to be in the major cities. Of course, we have others. A very good university is in London, Ontario, Kitchener, Waterloo, and so on. But I think that sense of the land grant university in a town that supports, a, you know, where the university culture dominates yeah. and where the music scene that comes out of the college culture dominates is relatively unusual in Canada. And I, so I was, it was an alien thing to me even when I first started hearing about it. Um, and I guess, you know, one thing is I'm simply more interested in urban music, which is why after punk and new wave, I became interested in house music and dance music because those were more urban. It doesn't mean I didn't like R.E.M. It doesn't mean I didn't like some of sort of you know the B-52s came out of Athens, Georgia, and, and, oh, and did, that's I didn't it. know that. Actually. Well, yeah. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not denying it. I just didn't know. Yeah. I'm not sure I answered that question. But, no, 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 you but did. I can't remember what it was. I was asking you about college rock radio and the sense that it was a, the mythic source of something really different and alternative. Yeah. And also that it's there's a narrative of massive decline. I mean, it barely exists now in the way that it did, through the radio medium at least. Yes, but I would say that the what college radio, college rock, those scenes set in place was the idea that diversity is great. If we have a lot of stuff going on, this is exciting. And of course, who wants to argue against that? But what I regret, in part about the sort of disappearance of the old-fashioned record industry and even the kind of marginalization of Billboard, I like the idea of of cycles, of trends, of things becoming popular and, and leaving. And of course, when you have a, um, a system, as I think we also do now, of absolute um, plurality where we, anyone can find any of the music they like, it also means that very little of it matters. Because nothing, when you're fighting for a center, then something to me is yeah. interesting going on in music. And you'll have, and then you have interesting, you know, in the early 80s, you have black and white American music fighting for a center. Now they're just all off doing their own thing. And maybe that's great, but it's also kind of boring. So how do you really capture imagination at a collective level? Yeah. Isn't that part of what you're... I hope that was a rhetorical about? question. <laughs> so the other thing I wanted to ask you about was the interrelationship with the different ways of understanding culture. And again, we can focus on music or not. Which is, for people like you and me, I think it's fair to say, we think that you need to have in some kind of creative tension issues of ownership, control and state participation, political economy, meaning, textual analysis, what's in these things, and distribution, career, circulation, how people make sense of them and how they travel, right? And more or less, I think it's fair to say, you and I probably both think all those three things are important. But in most of academia, they continue to be not, not even interesting debates, but simple lines drawn lines that yeah. separate these things. I mean, I guess what I would ask you, Toby, is do you think where you come from, and then the fact that you lived in places that you're not from, I mean, as a Canadian, and I'm not saying Canadians are spontaneously interdisciplinary in that sense, but you look They're just at, organically apologetic. That too, <laughs> and I'm sorry for that. <laughs> but I do think that... As a music fan, right. the first thing you learn in Canada, if you were like a sort of a hardcore punk fan, like I'm not 
fan of hardcore punk, but a deep punk fan, you learn the difference between imports and domestic releases, and that those were more expensive. And you learned that if you bought this magazine from Britain, you would learn about music in a different way than if you brought this music, bought this magazine from the United States, because there was no just sort of naturalized knowledge within Canada. It was always piecing it, it together. So I think, and I think probably in Australia it was the same case. Um, yep. So. I don't want to romanticize Canadian academic approaches to culture by saying that we automatically have a, an approach that, that balances the two, but I think it's very difficult to not think of the two because you're always thinking, is this expressing Canadian identity or not? And also, why does this cost a dollar more because we had to import it, um, and I don't think most right. people in the U.S. think of that. It's the, natu the naturalization of culture then allows them to easily divide off different forms of analysis without making the connection between them. Whereas the default setting, if you're slightly on the periphery, again not romanticizing wealthy countries, but if you're slightly on the periphery... Not on, on record anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and of course we're post-record anyway. Yeah. <laughs> how it got to you and what the difference is between how it got to you in your country versus how it circulated elsewhere. You learn that everything it, comes from somewhere. It, it's intrinsic yeah. to your enjoyment and your appreciation. So yeah. uh, for, in, in my case in Australia there was a big fetish when I was a teenager and buying every record that came out, but buying only imported releases. Of course, we of would course, not buy the parallel importing system of presses. Of if it had been pressed in an Australian factory, guess what? It was inferior. We knew. Yeah. How did we know? I've no clue. Because we paid a dollar fifty more at the import record store yeah. <laughs> than we did for the version. And the British imports always had shiny covers. I don't know if that was the case in Australia. Mm. Yeah, shiny covers. No, I think they had more matte covers actually. But sometimes they would be. We were really showing our age here. They would, they would fold out. Every now and then, so for example, the Australian Sergeant Pepper, after the first couple of years, was not a fold-out. Before my time, but go ahead. <laughs> God, he thinks he can win me over with these childish, churlish outbursts. For the it's record, not, I'm older than Toby. It's not happening, listeners. But I think you're absolutely right. There's something about being from somewhere outside this core yeah. that makes you think about circuits of distribution. No, as I and I said this in my paper yesterday, Canadians become cold-blooded sort of um, connoisseurs of, of of these differences. You know that a Canadian version of something is probably going to be a little cheap. You know that if you turn on a film on television and it has a sort of faded American actor, but then you know the next five names are faded American actor and the next five names are Canadian. You go, aha! It was shot. I'm here. not going to fall for this. Yeah. But what about? Let's think of Michael J. Fox. My guess is that maybe 299 million Americans, as in citizens or residents of the United sure. States, think he's from the United States. Well, you know the Canadian joke, which is how many Canadians does it take to screw in a light bulb? One to screw it in and nine to go, he's Canadian, you know. I mean, I love doing this. You know, I meet people who don't know Leonard Cohen is Canadian. Uh, Michael J. Fox is easy to, or easier to understand. But, um, but his new, I first encountered Leonard Cohen when I was 16, and the first thing I knew about him, apart from his name and that he was cool, was that he was Canadian. Well, that's good. And most, I mean, most people know that, but the number, but I'm still always. No, I think probably a lot of people in the United States yeah, don't. Yeah. And you could ask the question: Is he Canadian? I mean, he's from Montreal. He comes back to Montreal, but he lived a long time 
on the top of a mountain doing uh, his Buddhist thing. When he talks, he sounds Canadian to me. He sounds Michael Michael J. Montreal Fox. Jewish for me, and that, right, that's right, great. Right. That's Michael J. Fox doesn't sound like he's ever been there. No, but that's why, for example, um, Peter Jennings, um, one of the guys from the McNeil Lair Report, a lot of anchor people in top network jobs in the U.S. are Canadian because we, we're seen as sort of having this neutral accent. Well, Peter, Peter Jennings, now um, sadly deceased, Lung cancer. was a great, a really great uh, reporter in Vietnam. That's right. Uh, and later, and did sound Canadian in those days, if you listen yeah, to the yeah, tapes, yeah. went on to become ABC News anchor, and in the United States, ABC was the only network that even approximated telling the truth about no gracias, no even approximated telling the truth about the political economy of US imperialism and when Jennings was the anchor would not do celebrity trivia. By the way, I like celebrity trivia, but I'm not, I don't think it belongs in the news. No, and if I we go it, way back but they he was very their, committed yeah, to it. And their that. triple anchor thing with him of um, Max Robinson, Frank Reynolds, um, Peter Jennings, where they really were covering international stories in a way that the other network very, very serious news guy. Uh, we definitely think about Peter Jennings. In the case of Robin McNeil, um, who was on the McNeil Lair Report, he was the, the great philanderer and novelist, whereas Jim Lehrer was the sort of boring son of a bus driver. Robin McNeil, I guess he changed his name from Robert to Robin, which lots of people do. <laughs> I've often wondered about this. I think it might have gender been... Gender ambiguity? I don't know. No, seduction tech. Well, oh, yeah. every, every form of gender ambiguity is just seduction technique. Let's face it. In any, sorry, I didn't say That's that. right, Toby with an I. You all made me do it. <laughs> but in the United States, lots of Tobys with a Y are women, actually. It's kind of African-American and Jewish female. African-American man, Jewish female, and also canine name. I'm out of my league on this one. but If you look up Toby Miller and sex on your friendly neighborhood search engine, uh, there's a, a, a kind of not minor, not major, if there's a medium league expression. You don't know about the Facebook group with the same name. I Porn actress. Great. No, I don't. Porn actress. <laughs> anyway. So let's get back to this thing. So you're saying there's something about coming from certain kinds of countries that pushes you to think about the, the manufacture and distribution of culture alongside, alongside its contents. Yeah. And that, that is something that we in the United States, well, I've just left the United States, but I've lived there for 20 years and I identify with it in lots of ways. No, we in the United States don't have, because you use an expression I really like, which is, I think, having a naturalized sense of culture, that it's simply there in front of you. Yeah? Well, it starts from things as simple that if you are a Canadian writing an article, you start by saying the country you're writing about. I mean, I read so many articles in supposedly international journals that say, that start out with like, you know, on this date, the Senate passed this law, and I want to say, what Senate? Of course, I know what Senate it is, but why do you not have to mention it? Um, Academic professional associations. Yeah. Well, I wanted to say who, I love the fact that, you know, I'm going to go on a bit of a rant here, like only in the U.S. could you start the Cultural Studies Association, and people say, is it the American one? Well, no, no, we're international. We're, we're happy to be for the world. If Imagine if in Canada we said, we're starting a cultural association, which we think could be the world one. We'd, we'd be laughed for our kind of audacity and, and silly. Yeah, but you'd never do it. We would never do because it. Because you would acknowledge yeah. the partiality, yeah. the partialness of your worldview. Yeah, which is why in Canada, if you Google things like CCA, CSA, um, 
because every association has to have Canadian in the front. Um, there, there's like 15 Canadian sociological, the Canadian political science, sinophilic, yeah, Canadian cocksucker association. Which I'm sure you're not a member, you're not a founding member of, but I'm of course patron of. No, I mean I think that is a, that's a seriously important issue, and getting the United States to nominate itself. Yeah. If you think back to stamps, that's where I go. The British still don't have their names on their stamps, right? It's the only country in the world that I'm aware of that's true. that doesn't tell you. I mean, you, I where started the stamp as a stamp collector. That was a problem. And in the United States, the internet is the model. Now there are some .us. Domains. No, and that's a classic example. But by and large, yeah. the, 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 the snail mail and electronic mail are the two signs of the dominant imperial forms yeah. at the moments that those technologies prevail. Yeah? I mean, why is, is it not the U.S. Journal of Modernism Modernity? You know, because, of course, well, we're going to be the international one. But again, that's the that's on the one hand a gesture of generosity and openness, but it's an imperializing um, gesture. I can't think of another word. Yeah, 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 no, absolutely. But let me ask you about how that you know people like I think you and me both dismissed Wallerstein and core periphery ideas in lots of ways, but they won't go away. And Canada has its own core periphery relations, doesn't it? Both sure, sure. in terms of provincial arrangements and international. Yeah. We all have about it. No <coughs> I mean, Canada is hardly an innocent culture, country in lots of ways. I mean, everything from um, sort of supporting various U.S. wars to you know, we've also we have if we haven't been colonial, we've been neo-colonial, and we've been colonial vis-a-vis -vis our north. And we now have a government that wants to sell, for example, huge parts of our uh, tar sands, oil sands industries to China. Um, yeah. You know, we've been both colonial and we've been the kind of classic victim of colonialism where we're a, um, a, bread, we're a resource wholesaler um, selling our sovereignty and our resources, which is one of the great themes of Canadian political economy. Um, but I think at this point it's not enough to make a, to allow us to sort of claim a romantic, heroic victimization status. Sure. Because, uh, yeah. Let me ask you then about Francophone Canada in this context, uh, because you live in Francophone Canada, you're bilingual, uh, you teach at a Francophone... No, I teach at a... Oh, it's an Anglophone Staunch university. Anglophone university, oh, where yes. the students have the right to submit their work in French, and where one-third of the students are Francophone, but okay. it, is, it is an Anglophone it, Oh, my apologies, thank you. Yeah, I guess called McGill, I should have worked that out. Tell me about how that plays itself out at the moment. Well, we've just gone through an election, um, and to me it's very interesting because um, I'm an Anglophone who moved to Montreal for the first time in 1978, which was just before the first referendum on Quebec sovereignty. And the Anglophone community there that I knew, which was not the old, the old line Anglophone community, was very torn between, on the one hand, a commitment to Canada as a project and idea, as a place within which we wanted to live, and on the other hand, the fact that Quebec it's not that we had any interest in the idea of Quebec being independent, but the idea, ideals that went along with Quebec independence were those originally of, a, of, of tolerance. I mean, Quebec accepted huge numbers of Chilean refugees after 73, uh, refugees from North Africa and immigrants and so on, and social democracy. And so Quebec remains a kind of, even when we have sort of slightly right of center um, governments in Quebec, it's still by the standards of 
Canada and the U.S., uh, quite radical. So, um, Ang Anglophone Quebecers are, you know, especially intellectual artists, progressive types, have always been torn um, between having nothing to gain really from Quebec being becoming sovereign, but on the other hand, being drawn to the project. Um, now we just had an election. Um, where all my Anglophone progressive friends basically have turned against the Parti Québécois, the sovereigntist, independentist party, because of what we see as their xenophobia, because they've come now to emphasize more and more the, the historic people of Quebec, which is the people whose ancestors came 400 years ago. I'm rambling here. Why don't you no, no, not, no, 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 keep going. I like this. Um, this is important. And so this one, this election was very interesting because there was a complete um, move away from, there was almost no kind of Anglophone support for the Parti Québécois, which is the party that wants Quebec's independence. Because even though, and we've seen this since they were elected a few weeks ago, they actually have come through with a lot of social, democratic, progressive policies. Um, there's still the fear that deep down now there's a xenophobia that defines the Quebec people as those whose ancestors came 400 years ago. If you're an English Canadian, most of you, no, 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 it's not like my ancestors came 400 years ago. All my friends are Italian, Greek, uh, Portuguese, Arabic, Anglo-Canadians whose ancestors came. 20 years ago, or in my case, you know, after World War One, and so there's not that sense of a primal claim yeah, on things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess the other thing is what, uh, that this risks not only the bicultural aspects of Canada, but the notion that people from less privileged parts of the world might have a special status. Yeah. If you're completely focused on a white francophone heritage, yeah. that's going to or potentially militate against yeah. the folks from Africa, from the Caribbean, and elsewhere. But you know, the, found Canada to be a tolerant, yeah, and accepting Canada, place. You know, and Quebec is more tolerant than people give it credit. Now, yeah. Quebec, because Quebec wants immigrants to speak who speak French, they actually come from the poorer parts of the world, and Quebec accepts them. So it's not like the rest of Canada that just wants somebody who's going to come in with a million dollar check and buy their citizenship and then buy a you know, and start a business. So, um, well, that's good. So, so they, do they have a certain amount of autonomy in terms of immigration policy? Well, one of the amazing things about the Canadian system is that, and you've had this for some time now, is Quebec actually has control over its own immigration. I mean, imagine, I heaven forbid, that. Arizona having control over its own <laughs> um, immigration. Thank and, God for the Supreme Court. Let us say. And Quebec has successfully over the last 30 years won back lots of powers. I mean, one of the, for example, in Quebec, in the rest of Canada, if you, when you work, you pay into the Canadian pension plan, which I guess is like the U.S. Social Security or maybe not. Um, well, I'm sure it's not in that I'm sure yeah. it actually works and is yeah, fair. Well, yeah, but Quebec actually has its own, which means that the money we pay into the government pension plan is actually used to reinvest in Quebec and help Quebec not just sort of get spread out across Canada. Um, so Quebec has lots of, ind has independence in lots of different ways that would make actually the final, because even the Parti Québécois' idea of independence would be a, probably a common currency, common military, uh, if not a shared passport, obviously a passport that allowed people to move freely between the borders. At this point, the idea of Quebec independence is as much symbolic as anywhere else. I mean, Quebec... Sounds like Scotland. Yeah, exactly. And one of yeah. the things is, you know, the Canadian government has gotten out of supporting 
Canadian studies around the world, the Délégation Générale du Québec, the Quebec offices, which if there's one in Mexico City that pumps a lot of money into the promotion of Quebec in um, Mexico. Um, you know, again, it would be like the Alabama... Uh, no, except it's not. No, it isn't, and no. it actually supports. I mean, it's a bit too much Cirque du Soleil for my benefit. For my uh, okay, face, but it's but, outward yeah. looking. Uh huh. Unlike its United States equivalent, which is inward looking. Right. You've got to give it that. Let me ask you then: um, if, Can you? Because you've mentioned this to me off piste. As I think one's supposed to say, I've actually never either used or understood this expression, but I just tried it. You mentioned to me before we were recording that the federal Canadian government has pulled back from its subvention of culture around the world. Uh, the Canada Council for me was mythic, so were Canadian embassies in general, in their support of all kinds of cultural activities. And I was astonished to hear this from you, and I wondered if you could tell us what this is Well, about. this is big news for people in my field. I direct an institute for the study of Canada. And the Canadian government, for years and years now, has given money in many, many countries to, for example, set up associations of Canadian studies, um, to fund conferences, and in particular under what was called the Faculty Enrichment Grants, to allow somebody in Serbia who wanted to build a course on Canadian cinema or literature to come to Canada, buy some DVDs, talk to experts, learn things and go back and actually um, start a course that would make Canada well known. And there were some, there's been some very successful associations. I mean, in... Um, um, it sounds like a cheap day. Yeah. A cheap but good day. The whole day. program um, so, was sorry, about $3 listeners. million, dollars and it was just, they yeah, cut everything. Right. They cut and we can only take this as kind of the our current conservative government's um, revenge on intellectuals who they never particularly like. So, two things I would say about this. One of them is that this little program that cost $3 million that ha would have these nice, well-meaning um, professors come from former Eastern Europe for two weeks in Montreal to, to talk to people and learn how to do their course of Canadian literature. They sp it turns out the study showed they probably spent more money than they actually got from the Canadian government. So in, in terms of a, you know, a, a balance sheet. Um, but it also means that in Canadian embassies around the world, the old cultural education attaches who promoted Canadian culture and education, a lot of them have just simply lost their jobs. And what you have in place are people who are only interested in business relationships between Canada and other countries. The wonderful woman, the cultural education attaché in Budapest in Hungary, which also covered a number of other neighborhood countries, just lost her job. She had done more to promote the study of Canada. Hungary, there's a huge interest in Canada because so many Canadian Hungarians went to Canada after 1956. Like our friend Imre Seaman. Yeah. Yep. And they're relatives back home want to know about Canada, all of that money has just been completely wiped out. Wow. And you, you, given that Canada, because it's a sensible country in many ways, had not gone through the maniacal deregulatory fervour that applied in many other English-speaking countries, this isn't about a fiscal crisis, this is a deliberate policy. This is a deliberate policy that is, I think, I, I would say based in part on the sense that you know, it's the intellectuals 
You know, the current government knows more or less that most intellectuals, at least in the humanities and social sciences, do not support them. So why reward them? Now, the Canada Council for the Arts, which supports artists, I will say that the current government has maintained their funding at current levels, and that's good. And I would say I'm lucky to live in Quebec, where every federal program in the, in the field of arts and, and research, university-based research, is matched by Quebec uh, policies, which means we can sort of double-dip and have lots of advantages. But for the rest of Canada, it's a little more wow. dire. Wow. Now, Will, we've got about 10 minutes left, and you've been very generous with your insights about many things. I'd love to have you talk a little bit about some of the books you've done. And the three that I'm thinking of, just very quickly, would be, in no particular order, a book you co-edited on music. You've probably done more than one. Cambridge Companion of Pop and Rock? No. Uh, okay, well, we, I wasn't thinking You're of that. There was, one, <laughs> no, there, was one, there was one with Simon Frith. And John uh, Street, yeah. Yes. I'm thinking of Accounting for Taste. Accounting for Culture. Accounting for Culture, sorry, the one on cultural citizenship in Canada. And I'm thinking of uh, your book about popular crime magazines. Let's start there with that others, one, that's but, actually... But take me through, yeah. if you could, just yeah. take the listeners through these volumes. I mean, the first thing I'll say is that as someone who, as I've already admitted, procrastinates, and as someone who, for most of his career, has been doing administration, I'm much better at articles than at books. So I've written, published 123 articles, and I like the article as a form. Um, but I did a book a few years ago. I thought he was great. Yeah, and I like supporting live music, so I like I often. Um, I did a book called Cyanide and Sin, Visualizing Crime in 50s America. Fabulous. I've been interested for a long time in the, this genre, now dead, now forgotten, called the True Crime Magazine, where you have magazines, there are hundreds and hundreds of them that talk about two crimes but face the problem that when you have a, when a crime happens there's not usually a photographer there photographing it so how do you come up with images and so I did a book that with an art gallery, the Andrew Roth Gallery in New York that looked at several hundreds of these magazines um, <laughs> really another, another book that I am proud of and that I co-edited with a colleague, a former student of mine Alexander Boutros is called Circulation and the City um, because I was very interested in sort of theories of the circulation of culture and that came out of a project called the Culture of Cities 2000-2005. One of the great sort of results of Canadian research funding, we had a lot of money over five years to study Berlin, Toronto, Montreal and Dublin and to go to these cities and meet with local researchers and, and so on. So I'm happy about that book. Um, Accounting for Culture, you mentioned, came out of a conference. I, for a while I got sort of pulled in. There was a time when Canada now has no Department of Culture, but they had, for a long time had a Department of, they still do, Heritage. And they had very interesting intellectuals working there, defining what it means to be a citizen, what it means to have a Canadian culture. I did that book with them, and I think that's a nice sort of summary of a certain moment when the government was actually encouraging people to, and bureaucrats even to reflect on these things. Alas, that's sadly no longer the case. Well, I, I focus on books there for a moment, Will, but you mentioned that the article form is something you're happier with. 
and you said you've taught 123 of the fuckers. That's pretty amazing. For listeners here, I should say, I may have told you this before, uh, there are listeners in over 50 countries, so most people are not using English as a first language. For many of them, it may ironically be easier to get hold of your articles well, one of the than it is of your books. What, what would you sort of recommend or what would you draw attention to that people might be able to understand? Well, one of the things I learned early on is that I think it's increasingly the case that people don't read books and that books are hard to get and that rightly or wrongly, as it is the case with music and film, people don't want to pay for things. So what I started doing was putting up my articles on my website, strawresearchoneword.mcgill.ca, if I can do a plug. Sure. Um, and... When I started doing it, I thought, well, the publisher's going to ask, you know, because often when you do an article in an anthology, there's a point at which you get a PDF of more or less the final version. And so I started putting them up on my website. I thought, if the publisher asked me to take it down, maybe I will, maybe I won't, but they never have. And so most of my what I write, you can get there. Now, strawresearch.mcgill.ca. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, partly it's obviously self-promotion, the, the, the main reason people have websites, but I have a lot, I work with a lot of people in Brazil, a lot of people in Mexico, a lot of, you know, I, at UNAM, for example, the largest university in the Americas, um, they don't have access to Project Muse. Um, and so it is partly making this stuff, I have a lot, number of people I work with in Brazil who are very interested in the idea of music scenes who respond favorably to my work, and I like their work, and they also have an ethos of putting it up on the web. So, you know, I'm not some radical kind of open source guy, but I do think I'm going to get, as long as I can get away with it, I'm going to put my stuff up, and that's how you get readers, and that's really what it's about. Sure. And, uh, no, no, and I, I, I actually don't accept that it's just self-promotion. I think it's many other things, and you've mentioned them. Uh, you know, I'm a folk professor. I'm, I don't need... Um, well, of course, we all like a little favorable response to our work and an occasional invitation to a conference. Or in your case, 31 to Mexico, let alone many other parts of the world. But uh, it's great that a lot of your work is available there, and it is a terrific website that I would urge... I do it myself. I used to do it in Microsoft Word, and then I downloaded, I don't know, some crappy free program um, one day I'll jazz it up a bit but. No, the point is it gives you access to what you want to read but it, we've mentioned music a lot today but there are many other things you've written about could you just quickly run through for people what you see as some of the other major themes for those who again may not be working in English may not be familiar with the North American or cultural studies I scenes. guess there's three things that I, and they're all not coincidentally things for which I have grants. One of them is just urban culture. And I mean, I have a team funded by the Quebec government. We work on urban culture in Montreal. Um, but I'm also interested, I mean, I'm interested in things like the relationship between transportation and communications, which is why I was interested in free commuter newspapers that are handed out to people as they drive or walk by. Um, and I'm interested in, like, I want to write a history of the newsstand, a disappearing architectural and cultural form. Um, although here in Mexico, it constantly kind of shifts its functions, it sells different kinds of things. I have a project on film extras, and I'm very interested in that, both in terms of classic Hollywood, but also in terms of what it means for the labor of Canadian actors and actresses who get hired on big Hollywood films, and what it means to move 
from being a star in a Canadian film to a background performer in an American film, and that's one I want to work on. I guess the project that most excites me now, and I just got a little grant for that, is how cities around the world regulate the night. Um, in Europe, there are fantastic things happening. The Chant de la Vie Nocturne in Lyon, where you get the principal players in a city together to decide how are we going to deal with night? Are we going to control it or enable it or enable it? Um, enable it or enable, enable it. That was, yeah, I turned a slur into a brilliant kind of... Uh, <laughs> brilliant disguise. Yeah. And that, so those are the yeah. things that interest me now. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think if we can conclude with this, if you wouldn't mind just meditating on this for a moment or two, my sense is that your department at McGill in Montreal, which is Communication Studies and Art History... Art History and Communication Studies, yeah. Right, okay. They won the battle if you watched first, but... Yeah, well, let's make it, a, you know, alphabetic analysis or alphabetic... Analysis. That was their argument. That is a really interesting combination that could not happen in the United States. What is it... Is there or is there something that makes distinctive... Canadian communication studies and renders it appealing to you. Yes, and I would say the classic way we tell the story is that McLuhan, sort of the great Canadian communications theorist, was an English scholar. Um, communications studies in Canada has always had, I think, you know, if you look at department after department, statistically and um, by inclination, closer ties to the humanities um, than in, say, the U.S. Um, now, we still want to balance the social sciences and the humanities, but I think um, the way the discipline developed in Canada, there's still an interest in combining, and we talked about this at the beginning, interpretive relationships to media artifacts and, and questions of policy, questions of audience, and all those social things. So, you know, I have a fantastic colleague, Jonathan Stern, who works, you know, he's one of the founders, perhaps the preeminent founder of a field called Sound Studies. And, it, you know, this is a history of science approach to sound technologies. It's a policy approach. But it also is about, you know, the experience of listening and what it means for music to be compressed and coded and so on. And so even though Jonathan comes from the U.S., to me, he's a perfect embodiment of the best of Canadian communication scholarship. And my other colleagues are the same way. They're all... We can be seduced in Canada as we can in other countries by the grants, the consultancies that would come from doing a strictly statistical or quantitative analysis. But you know, you know, that's our universities are. I think give us a bit more freedom, and um, I think just the general kind of sensibility, the habitus of a Canadian communication scholar is to guard, is to keep all these different sides in a kind of balance. Well, thank you, old boy. As the music comes up. <laughs> As the music comes up, exactly, and we hit the top of the hour. Will, it's been great talking to you. Thank you very, Toby, very much. it's wonderful to sit here in, facing the Parque de Mexico in the Condesa and talk like this. Nothing could be better than to be here it's in Carolina. Carolina in the morning. Right?